Let's pray once again. Father, we believe that uh, your word comes to us with clarity. It comes to us with conviction. It comes exposing uh, who we are. But it also comes directing us where we need to go and what's important and what we need to be pursuing. So, Father, use your word, we pray, to give us sort of a recalculating of our life compass that we may um, align our lives in a way in which we are pursuing the things that truly matter in the year that lies before us and whatever time you allot to us. And we pray you would do so for the glory of your name. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. When you hear the word priority, what comes to your mind? I came across a more helpful definition of the word priority. When I looked in, uh, online, they now have a listing of, this is how they would define it for people who are learning English. That's called putting it on my level so I can understand complicated terms. But this is what it said. Uh, a priority is something or someone that is more important than other things. A priority is something that's to be done or dealt with first. It's the condition of being more important than something or someone else and therefore coming to be dealt with first. It's a priority. As you look back on your last year of life, what would you say was your top priority overall? What was your most important, what is your most important priority right now as you now have begun a new year? And what will be your highest priority in the years ahead as we wait for and tarry until the Lord comes? There are any number, obviously, significant things that could become our priorities, significant things that we should devote our time and attention to, all sorts of worthwhile activities, ministries, things like that. But the central thing I want to ask this morning as we launch into a new year is, what is your chief priority? Identifying this and having this clearly in mind and reviewing it again and again will help us steer a clear course through the twists and turns of whatever lies in front of us in the year ahead. And this is on my mind because Jesus was asked about this question in Matthew's Gospel, actually chapter 22, and I'd like to read that for us. Um, Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 34. Jesus, in the context here, is being asked a series of questions by the various spiritual authorities of his day. They were not asking them because they really wanted to know the answers. They were asking them because they really had an agenda to expose him as someone who could not be relied on and did not give authoritative teaching. But in verse 34 of Matthew 22, we read, When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had put the Sadducees to silence, in the previous question he answered for them, they gathered to get themselves together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and 
the prophets. Jesus gave the greatest answer to the greatest question about the greatest commandments in scriptures. And I'd like to consider five insights into this particular answer that he gave. These are going to be quick, not very lengthy on any particular point, because um, we could take all day to look at this. But I want us to think of five different insights here. Number one, the priority of loving God is lovingly commanded by God. What we read here in this text is clearly there's no greater duty or response that a person can make in relationship to God than loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind. The one and true God has eternally existed in a communion of love among the members of the Godhead, that God himself has always had a loving communion within himself forever. And that mutual love was not only shared by Father, Son, and Spirit, but now once God made the human race, he is now inviting and encouraging us who have the capacity to enter into this community of love among one another within the Godhead. Matter of fact, God in his essence, we learn in 1 John 4, 8, where it says God is love. God in his essence, as one author put it, that is, he is inherent in all that he is and all that he does. God is love. In other words, God himself is love and he's wired us to be lovers, to be people who also can, as image bearers, relate to God in wholehearted love and devotion. And so as I read these verses here in Matthew 22, it seems rather tragic that Jesus, in talking about the greatest um, aspiration and the greatest uh, goal toward which God has made us in his image, is to love him. Here is Jesus, God in human flesh, standing in front of these people. And it's clear that as the one who has incarnated and has revealed the love of God in the most dramatic and wonderful way, that people didn't seem too interested in him. Their response was not a love response by and large. Their priority was to do what? Their priority was to deflect attention away from their own corruption and from their own hatred of him. If you look again at the background of this text, verse 15 of Matthew, of Matthew 22, notice that the Pharisees are entangling Jesus and sort of perceiving in him that they want to get him into a tough spot where he's sort of backed into a corner. And notice that Jesus sees through all this. In verse 18, Jesus says, you people are full of wickedness in your attempts to try to ask these questions. Your, your motives are not pure at all. And that's why it says in verse 34, the Pharisee tested him with this particular question. It's no, no wonder then that having given all of these uh, uh, ill-motivated questions, you're, it's followed by chapter 23 in which Jesus just lays out all sorts of uh, indictments regarding the spiritual leaders of his day. He just calls them out on the carpet and says, these people are so corrupt and they're totally the opposite of what they appear to be in the flesh. 
Now let's go back and just think again about this idea of it's lovingly commanded that we love God. It basically says that no one is excused then from the responsibility and duty of loving God. Romans 13.10 tells us that love is the fulfillment of the law. If you summarize the law and all of this large data of, of commandments and encouragements and guidelines that God has given us, loving Him and loving our fellow man is what it all boils down to. In other words, loving God is His will for us. Wholeheartedly loving something or someone other than God is obviously the essence of idolatry. Our hearts are made to love God, and then therefore the question comes, has any of us done this? Has any of us really met this standard? Obviously we've all failed to love God comprehensively and wholeheartedly. None of us have made God our ultimate priority in a way that would be in keeping with who He is. So we've all failed to do this, obviously on a level that would meet up to the standard that God has set. And so as looking at this command, we first of all then must say, none of us can honestly say we've met the standard and we've actually done these things. Therefore, all of us are in need of someone to rescue us. We are a people who need to be changed on the inside. We are the people who need to be encouraged to be uh, honest, to acknowledge our fault, our, our falling short. And to remember that only God among himself, is the only one who's ever perfectly expressed love for another. And that Jesus himself perfectly loved the Father. It's the Spirit of God who perfectly loved Jesus and the Father. And therefore, our only hope of ever entering into this loving command is to find it in God, the God who in his essence is love. So that leads us then to our second thought here or an insight into the text, the priority of loving God involves more than superficial piety. More than superficial piety. Again, the question being asked here by this lawyer is a Pharisee himself, and you must understand these are very committed religious people. They are tithing on a regular basis. They are giving alms to the poor. They are people who are praying and making sure that people hear them pray aloud in public. And they have no problem performing all sorts of outward religious duties. They're very good at it. If you look on their moral performance record, they would have earned straight A's for their performance of pious deeds. They do very, very well in this area. The problem is their motivation. Their heart was doing the right things, but they were doing them all for the wrong reason. If you recall and look back in the various texts there in Matthew on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, it becomes clear that the love that these people had was mostly a love for themselves and for the applause and the admiration of other people. And uh, they're like the older brother there in Luke 15. I don't know if you've ever spent time meditating on the older brother of the parable of the Good Samaritan. <clears throat> we tend to focus on the younger brother who, who went off in all sorts of wild and um, outrageous living as he demanded the money from his father and basically said, I want more to do with you, and rejects the father and goes off and wastes all his money. But then the, the younger brother comes back. The father welcomes him and celebrates his coming back. 
gives him all of the blessings of being a child he owns and claims again. And then the older brother reacts to that. And this is what he says as a legalist, as a person who keeps the rules but has no love for God and no love really for other people who don't keep the rules. He says this, for many years, this is Luke 15, verse 29, for many years I have been serving you, he's talking to the Father, and I have never neglected a command of yours. A little bit on the generous side, I'd say, in his performance record, not to diminish the fact that he has done many things, I'm sure he has, and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But this son of yours came who has what? Devoured your wealth, wasted away, he says, with prostitutes. And yet you, the father, you've killed the fatted calf for him. You have brought out the biggest celebration we have. You've spent the most money, the, the most prized Opportunity to have meat, which they didn't usually have in a, in a meal. A typical meal did not include meat. You're bringing out the best we had. You wasted it on this guy. And the father says to him, Son, you've always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But what does he seem to upset about? What's he so angry about? He's not He's angry that the father's wasting all this money. He's upset that the, that the inheritance now belongs to him has become smaller because he's wasting it on this other brother of his who he sees as worthless, doesn't deserve anything good in his life ever again because why? He has not performed well. The older brother, all he cares about is money and material things. He doesn't care about his father, doesn't care about his brother, all he cares about is the fact that he's missing out on the greatest day of celebration. Why? Because he's so absorbed in himself. It's sad but true, but there are many people who do a lot for God, supposedly, but they do it for the wrong reason. They're trying to earn God's love. They're trying to be better kinds of people so that they would feel worthy of God's love. They focus on trying to meet the expectations of other people. But in their hearts, there's really not much love for, for God. I have a quote here in your notes by Tom Askell I thought it was quite helpful. He says that every capacity and faculty of our being should express the fullness of our affection for God, that God is our supreme treasure. God is our supreme treasure treasure in other words there are not many treasures that are of equal value but god is the supreme treasure and therefore he's one that we love and value the most and the devotion of this pharisee toward god was clearly divided it looked like it was really a devotion for god but really it was divided among his his concern about himself advancing his own sense of importance in the idea in the eyes of other people and that the idols of his heart which were idols of respect, the idol of power, the idol of pride, the idol of greed, shall we say, really were robbing God of the ultimate priority. And so when God calls us here to make Him the ultimate priority, it's almost as if we're saying, 
you are the primary one. I've got to forsake the other priorities with regard to when there's a conflict between the two. I've been thinking about uh, marriage vows and how that sort of is stated rather clearly in the marriage vows. Um, there comes a time in the wedding ceremony when they say to, for example, the groom, will you, Joe Doe, will you have this woman to be your wife and to live together in the holy covenant of marriage? And will you love her, comfort her, honor and keep her in sickness and in health, forsaking all others, be faithful to her so long as you both shall live. Now what are all those clauses in there going on and on and on? Forsaking all others. Forsaking all others says what? You're my main priority. I'm going to devote my time, my attention, my material goods. It's all about committed to you throughout the lifetime together. I'm thankful to say that as I've gone through some of our family history, that's been proven true in my parents' life. I've been going through a bunch of old photographs, trying to thin down the things that are worth saving and try to figure out what's not worth saving. I'm the one that ended up all these boxes. I don't know why, but it is interesting. So I'm going through photo albums of my parents during their college years. My parents didn't meet each other till the end of their college experience. And so during the interim, you keep running across photographs of nameless people. In my mother's photo albums, all of these guys keep appearing. I'm like, who's this? Who's that? Who's this? Who's that? And then I would go through my dad's, and here's various uh, women that he took to the, these big formal dances they had. It's amazing, this complex social world they lived in when they had very, very complicated uh, or elaborate uh, dance uh, formal dances they'd have, bring in bands and stuff. Anyway, but the point is this. I'm thankful to say that those people remained nameless. My parents, when they said, when they devoted to each other, they said, forsaking all others, they did that. There was committed love that they had for each other, and I didn't hear about all these people. They didn't call all these other people on the phone. They never included them in their correspondence. They never gave money to these people. They never spent time with these other people in any kind of significant way. They faded in the background. In some ways, I think that's what God is calling us to. He's saying, I want you to make me the one who has the main priority of your life. Thirdly, we learn that the priority of loving God requires a changed heart. A changed heart. As I've thought about Galatians chapter 5 and the fruit of the Spirit, one of the areas of fruit of the Spirit is love. It's evident that unless the Spirit helps us, none of us will ever love God supremely or comprehensively unless God changes our disposition, unless He begins to change us on the inside. We need new hearts. We need new affections. And this is the promise of the gospel. As a matter of fact, in John 3, it says, no one will enter the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again. And the Holy Spirit is the one who is able to transform us, to change us, and to give us a new direction of life, new aspirations in life. Instead of being people who are sin-seeking and self-focused hearts, by the gospel we are transformed and having stony hearts that were all about me, 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 to having hearts that are all about God and loving Him and celebrating Him. 
All of us by nature operate in this world by being lovers, but lovers of things that were never meant to be the ultimate source of our love or the um, recipient of our love. For example, 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul lists a number of people who are loving things. He says, there are people who are lovers of ourselves. Well, we all fall in that category, right? Lovers of money, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. The problem is we reject God's love, preferring to love what God made instead of loving God himself who made all things. And the wonderful truth is that God in the gospel, by his grace, grants us the gift of regeneration in which our hearts are changed and we begin then to delight in God in ways that we never used to. And then according to Romans chapter 5, God's love is poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. I think what he's saying is we just have an amazing experience of the love of God that just pours out in, in, in generous amounts again and again and again in our hearts once you become a child of God because we're now adopted into his family. And that love then changes us to act differently. If you look at 1 John 4, verses 7 and 8, Love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God. And the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. If you don't long to love God, it's probably a good time to start asking yourself some questions. Maybe it's, maybe it's possibly possible that I'm not a person who has truly been born again. Maybe there is the lack of the love of any kind of love for God is evidence that maybe I am not truly regenerate. And therefore, it's time to be on my knees and say, Lord, I need you in your love to change my heart so that I might truly love you as I never have before. Two more quick points. Number four, priority of loving God is practical. Practical. In other words, if we truly have a wholehearted love for God, there's going to be some fruit of that that's evident in our lives somewhere. Because love for God expresses itself in obedience to God's revealed will. This is very clear. And you look at the passage in, uh, Rome, uh, sorry, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, when Moses again is repeating this idea of loving God and explains what loving God entails. He goes on to say, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 20, Love the Lord your God. How do we do that? By obeying His voice, by holding fast to Him. If you carefully observe all these commands I am giving you to follow, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to hold fast to Him. So he's giving us an idea of what loving God and expressing that love is obviously pointing us in the direction of taking seriously what He's called us to pursue and to do. It says in 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. But you say, oh, those commandments, man, they just, they just stifle me. They just, you know, they really hinder me from really enjoying the things I want to enjoy. That's not what Scripture says. Scripture says His commandments are not burdensome. They're really a blessing. 
And those who love God and delight in Him joyfully surrender to God's ways. They submit to His authority. He says in John chapter, 1 John 2.5 says, Whoever keeps God's word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. There's a sense in which when you walk in God's ways, our heart resonates with God, that we are walking in ways that are pleasing to him, and that we therefore, his love is all the more evident and real in our hearts. And also we know that love for God produces the fruit of hating what God hates. Do you ever think about that? If I truly love God, then one of the ways I express that is to not in any way celebrate what God hates. Psalm 97.10 says, Hate evil, you who love the Lord. Now, as I've thought about that, I've thought about many a time when I've given to each of our children on their birthdays, particularly as they've gotten older, you give them money for their birthday. And so we gladly and joyfully celebrate the gift they are to us, and we give them a little bit of change, and say, here, you're free to buy whatever you want. Now, I haven't asked my kids, but I wondered, have they spent their money on things that they clearly would be um, items that would offend me or cause me to get so agitated and frustrated and upset with them? For example, if my kids were to spend their money, I give them, on the lottery, if my kids were to spend their money going into some casino somewhere and just wasting it away at some, you know, uh, silly wheel going around with a, with a little bit of a marble in there, if they, if they were to go and they were to uh, gamble on racehorses, I assure you, my kids, when they hear anything, has, anytime the word lottery comes up, my kids know what I think about that. I think it's a get-rich-quick scheme in which one person or few benefits from the losses of everyone else. And it's a system design in which they know majority of people are going to lose money. And so therefore, it's not wise. It's not a very wise investment at all. It's a really a waste of money and really a whole system to me is, that seems quite corrupt. And so I'm thankful to say none of my kids take the resources that I give them and they waste them on things that would highly offend me and get me agitated because they know you say lottery they say get rich quick get rich quick scheme now you know exactly what i think about it the point is i think you get the point are we the same way with god the things that god hates are those the things that you hate and then lastly i would just say another practical way of fruit is love for god prompts us to love those people that god loves 1 John 5, 1. Whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. It's not an optional matter. That's why when you join a church, as members of a church, we are committed in a covenant by which we say, I am now bound, binding myself with other believers to say, we are going to love each other no matter what. Because that is our commitment. Why? Because we love God. We're committed to God. And the way we ev evidence that love is that we commit to loving those who are in the family of God, identified as the members of this church. And so that's one of the ways that we show that we love God, is to say, I'm committed to loving other believers here. If you're not a member, then you're not committed. You can walk away any time. No big deal. It's the commitment lived out gives, bears witness that you are truly a disciple.
Now, how would you gauge your love for God? Looking at your life, are there evidences in light of some of these practical things we've talked about that maybe your obedience is somewhat half-hearted here? Are you settling for doing enough just to get by? You're making it look like, well, you're doing some good things, so your reputation's not that bad, but honestly speaking, your love is perhaps, you know, lacking in some areas. It's, you're not really giving wholehearted diligence and devotion to God. Today's an opportunity to say, Lord, I acknowledge and confess that, and I, will, again, want to express my love to you in ways that are different than what I, perhaps I've been doing. And that's why we come to the Lord's table. We'll talk about that in a minute. But it really would help if we had a proper motivation. You say, I just wish I had a greater sense of desire of, the, of, of, of knowing God's love and then living out my expression and response of His love in everyday life. Well, that's our last point. The priority of loving God is a joy-filled pursuit. It's a joy-filled pursuit. What do I mean by that? Well, wholehearted love that produces obedience is going to have to spring from proper motives. Some people try to obey God primarily to earn His blessings. That's really why they're doing it. They just want to have His thumbs up. Other people are doing it because they don't want to be punished for not doing the right thing, just to, out of fear. But our response to loving obedience is not to be rendered to God that we might become worthy of His love. That's not it. 1 John 4.19 says, We love Him, why? Because He first loved us. So our love is always a response to what He's already shown to us in love. And the best way to grow in our love for God is to reflect on and to ponder and to once again contemplate God's love as expressed to us in His Son, Jesus Christ, again and again and again. To go over it and to think about God's love was most clearly demonstrated when Jesus Christ lived His life for you, laying aside all of His glory in heaven, came here and yielded up His life on the cross, taking our place as sinners. And the best way to stoke the fire of our love for God, which will then fuel the flames of obedience, is to what? Preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Every day. And this is why I want to commend to you a, an excerpt from a book called Dis The Discipline of Grace by Jerry Bridges. I've got a little excerpt there, a little quote from chapter 7, in which Jerry Bridges tackles this issue of motivation. What is it that would cause us to love God more and more? He says, the extent to which we realize and acknowledge our own sinfulness and the extent to which we realize the total forgiveness and cleansing from those sins will determine the measure of our love to God. So if we want to grow in our love for God, do you? Do you want to grow in your love for God? Well, keep coming back to the cross and the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. What great advice for us in the year ahead. I think of the illustration, and when this all sort of draw this to a conclusion, in Luke chapter 7, there's a woman who comes uh, into a scene in which there's lots of celebrating going on, there's lots of commotion with this incredible meal that's being presented, and, 
and people are reclining there on one elbow and they're just eating this meal and this uh, significant people there. And a woman is in the background here, down on her knees, weeping, taking some very expensive heirloom of her family probably. is something that's been passed down that has great value, an alabaster container with this ointment. And she doesn't care about the value of that. She just wants to take what is the most valuable thing to her. She wants to pour that on Jesus' feet. And she's wiping his feet with her hair. And clearly that is something that you just don't do in public for a woman to touch someone else's feet like a, a man like that and to, uh, and to give him this kind of aroma, aroma of, of incredible expensive perfume. People are like, what are you doing? What is this woman doing? How could she do this? To let her hair down is to, is to express some sort of inappropriateness, culturally speaking. Only um, immoral women do that. And Jesus said this, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. Not just a few sins, her sins, which were many. Can you identify with her? Many sins, for, but they've been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. In other words, this woman's act of sacrificial love and devotion was the overflow of really her love for Christ. She didn't care what other people were saying about her. She didn't care about what they thought of her. Her motivation were out of a profound sense of appreciation of what Christ had extended to her already. John Owen, another quote in your notes, has a very helpful statement. He says, the greatest sorrow, the greatest burden that you can lay upon God the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to Him is not to believe that He loves you. It is not to believe that He has come to rescue you, not to believe that He has provided His Son to redeem and to claim you as His own and to forgive you and to give you new life. My friend, if our devotion to God is routine, if our devotion and love to God is drudgery, my friends, we need to apply to our hearts once again, again and again, today and tomorrow and the next day, the gospel of grace. More and more we know and accurately understand who God is and what He's done for us in Christ, our capacity for love will increase. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that as we think about this command to love you with all of our heart and soul and strength and mind, that you would use it, first of all, to humble us, to make us realize, boy, we are nowhere close to doing that that all of us have failed miserably to live up to this standard. And therefore, Lord, we come thanking you for giving of your Son. We thank you for the way in which he has provided for us to be forgiven. We thank you for the way he has proven your love to us by the giving of himself in our place. And I pray, Lord, that you would take the love that has been shown so clearly to us in Christ and melt our own hearts, Lord,
cause us to be like this woman who are just blown away, astounded, amazed, utterly overwhelmed by the wonders of your love for us, that we who have sinned much are forgiven much through Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you would, by means of the gospel, as we once again rehearse it and as we celebrate in the meal that follows, we pray that you would help us, Father, to have hearts that are much more devoted to you, a love that causes us to be seeking after you, being devoted to you, being willing to let go of other things that are lesser priorities and making you the ultimate priority of our life. Father, may this be a sweet time of fellowship around the cross of Christ and around our Savior who loved us and gave himself for us. We pray in his name. Amen.